join Beer Edge for our first live event, Inspired by Beer, an evening with Tommy Arthur of the Lost Abbey and Port Brewing. During this Boston-area tasting, listen in as Tommy discusses beers that have inspired him in his brewing career, plus drink a few of his own creations. The fun happens on January 30th. Find tickets and more information at BeerEdge.com. Ho, ho, ho. I'm John Hall. This is a special Christmas Day bonus episode of Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is my good friend, author, and historian, Maureen Noble. Which, in my, honestly, in my wildest dreams in 2004, 5, 6, I could never imagine something like that happening. It's, beer is now being taken seriously as something worth intellectual endeavor from people who aren't in the industry. I'm very excited about that. I'm flabbergasted by the whole thing. And Welcome to the show. We're releasing this episode as a special Christmas Day bonus show. It's our gift to you. I'm John Hall, and Maureen Ogle is one of my favorite people. She's smart, she's funny, and she has historical insight into beer that is unmatched. So anytime I get a chance to sit down with her to talk, I always walk away with a new appreciation for this industry I'm lucky enough to cover. Maureen is the author of several books, including In Meat We Trust, An Unexpected History of Carnivore America, and Ambitious Brew, A History of American Beer. There is a revised edition that's out now of Ambitious Brew, and you should use those holiday gift cards and return credits to get yourself a copy. In this conversation, recorded in Denver during the Great American Beer Festival, we cover a lot of ground, including her next project, another beer book actually, that might interest those of you who got a kick out of my previous show with Jace Marty. There's a lot to learn from Maureen's research, and while we all might be focused, especially headed into a new decade, on the future, the lessons of the past are important. And since we're both writers, there's a lot of talk about that particular craft, and I try to gain a little more insight on what Maureen has learned as a historian diving into beer. And that's where we start. Here's our conversation. But I didn't actually write the book for the beer world. This is 100% true. When, when that book came out in 2006, the day it came out, I had literally met in person exactly one person in the beer world. And Daniel Bradford, who yeah. was publisher and owner of All About Beer magazine, and he's the guy who made everybody else, you know, convinced everybody else to talk to me. I didn't know anything about the beer world, and I'm not in the beer world. I don't work for a brewer. I'm not an average beer consumer. I don't go to beer festivals. I don't read beer books. I'm a historian. Right. So from my perspective, that doesn't really matter. I, my audience is just as much people who either never drink beer or when they do, they drink, I guess, Michelob Ultra is the, the beer that everyone in the world drinks now. What was the attraction then? Because what was the attraction to start writing about beer history? I am a historian and all my books are connected by one thing. In them, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be an American. What does it mean to look at the world through the eyes of an American? And as an American, how do I interact and respond with the world and that's the thing that connects books that appear to have no connection to each other. I've written a history of meat, I've written a history of Key West, Florida. My first book was my tenure book, is a history of household plumbing in the 19th century, but they're all explorations of 
how do Americans navigate the world around them? So the book isn't about the newest, latest thing in beer. It's about how Americans built beer and a beer industry and a beer culture that made sense to them. That's what the book is about. Yeah. What, what do you think it does mean to be an American through the lens of beer? One thing I have learned from writing these books is that Americans have an incredibly well-developed sense of entitlement, and we're seeing that play out right now. We take an awful lot for granted. And because we do take things for granted, and we, we all, to be an American, is to have a sense of infinite possibility. That's why people still try to come here, even though it's more difficult than it's ever been in our nation's history to get here, because the Constitution is what makes us who we are. We all take for granted that we have freedom of speech. For example, not to sound corny, but most people in the world don't have that. They don't get to believe what they want to believe. Yeah. And I think those things are worth thinking about and, and thinking about how they unfold through, through other things. And Beer and Meat, which was my, I guess, fourth book, th those are um, things that you eat and drink are very, um, they're rooted in the everyday. Well, it's you know, personal too, right? It, it's personal. And it's cultural. It's, per, it's personal, but it, it's always rooted in this large cultural construct that we put around it. In the 19th century, most Americans honestly believed alcohol was evil. And that was the context in which beer in this country as an industry was first born. Yeah. After Prohibition, millions of Americans and at least two generations of Americans had been convinced alcohol was evil. If you were a beer maker, you had to figure out how... How do I navigate, if I'm, I'm a business person, I want to make money, how do I convince people that this is okay? How do I carve out a place for beer? So, the, and now, I, I, the interesting thing about beer is that it is, of course, very novelty-driven. And the beer industry rests entirely on a foundation of true affluence. People can bitch about how little spending money they have and how big their visa bills are, but the reality is Americans are unbelievably affluent. And if the economy seriously crashes, this beer economy is going to go down with it because sure. it's supported by the, the idea that there's lots and lots and lots of people with disposable income. So that is a way in which a surrounding culture shapes beer, and beer in turn can be something that itself becomes a force that can shape things. So it's there's always a push and a pull. That's what intrigues me. With all the other industries that you've written about, or the topics that you've written about, from Key West to plumbing to to, to meat. I mean, I know you through through the beer space, mm -hmm. you know, and and much like you, I don't work in the beer industry. I cover the beer industry, right? Um, you know, which is an important distinction. Um, but you seem to hang out in this space uh, with us a little bit more than you know I, I don't necessarily see you going to the national poultry conventions um, actually I, mean, do, I did do you? I, well do you still I only went if someone paid me because okay. my time is valuable so I'm not going to go spend three days somewhere but I will say that with the beer people and again when the book came out I didn't know anybody and nobody yeah. knew me I'm sure there were a lot of people like who the hell does she think she is writing about beer she, and that was a criticism I got from lots of people how can you possibly know you say you don't even drink beer how could you possibly write about it again if you use that argument no one should write about the Civil War no one should write about the of history course. of Rome right 
but what I found, I found my people. I, I found, I don't hang out with the beer people so much as I hang out with people like you who write. And if you're a writer, it's a, if you're a writer, if you write books, I'm not a writer, I'm a historian who writes books. Being an author is a fairly toxic environment. Yeah. And it's important to find people who are smart and talented and genuinely interested in ideas and who aren't solely driven by, man, I got to get on the bestseller list. And if you're not on the bestseller list, I'm not going to be your friend. So what I found in Beer People, I said this in the at the epilogue in the book originally, and I left it in, some of the smartest, most talented, creative people I'd ever met in my life. Who wouldn't want to hang out with them? Has that creativity always been a part of beer in this country? I don't think so. I don't, th I don't think so, except in the case of the people, which is something I'm trying to write about. I'm writing a new book about beer, a completely I separate minute, beer. Yeah. Um, I think the people for whom there's the creative thrill are the people who are actually making the beer but we almost never hear about them. What we hear about are the people who own the brewery. We hear about Greg Cook. We don't hear about the guy who's actually making the beer. Sure, the for, third shift. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are the people, who, the people who actually get to make the beer, who get to design the beer, who get to think about what it's going to taste like. They're, they're very creative people, and this is the way they express it. They, you know, for them, making a beer is from equivalent to me writing a book. They're very creative endeavors. But I don't think, um, well, I think entrepreneurs are endlessly fascinating people. You know, they want to figure out how to make money. And I think the reason all my books feature in one way or another entrepreneurs, whether it's Gustavus Swift or the people who founded Key West or Adolphus Bush, they're driven by something I'm not, which is why they're multi-gajillionaires and I'm not. So I, I find yeah, those people... Yeah, but all of them people, are dead right now. So that, well, yeah. well so Jim Cook's moment. not That's dead true. and yeah. Ken Grossman's not well, the dead. the ones that you named. Has, okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but but it, I, I do think beer is very creative right now, but it's also... The machinery behind it is not so creative. The machinery behind it is... How can I build a business and take advantage of this consumer trend, yeah. which is what it is? So I find the people who write about beer much more interesting than the people who own the breweries. Although many of them are fascinating people because even billionaires start out from somewhere. Yeah. That's interesting to me, how you get from being someone like Ken Grossman to being a billionaire in your lifetime. And how you do it is through decades of 20-hour days where you just work your butt off right. to get there. I find that interesting. Well, and so much of what's happening in the beer space these days with breweries that are opening up is that they are finding it a little bit easier to open up and operate or get a hold of equipment or, you know, whatever, in the way that those early guys that's right. could not. And, that's right. And that sort of brings me to Jack McAuliffe. Okay. Who, in your, you introduced pretty much everybody yeah. to Jack uh, through this book mm -hmm. uh, when, it, when it first came out. And then uh, he kind of came out of retirement in 2010 uh, for Sierra Nevada's 30th anniversary mm -hmm. and uh, kind of came back into the space briefly a little bit and did yeah. the Sam Adams thing. And, uh, um, and he hated every minute of it. Absolutely he did, yeah. yeah. But I mean, but 
digging that story up and telling that story again, and I, I want to say that we had a previous conversation where your editor, your publisher, wanted you to kill that chapter. Yeah. And you, and you fought to keep it in. Yeah, 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 because, well, I don't even know why she, well, I don't know what her motivation was, but from my perspective, again, I'm a historian, so I want to look at the things that actually made a difference. So you can criticize me in this in ambitious brew, which is a, essentially a large survey of a business and a culture that no one had really written about before. And when you write a big, broad survey, I can't, I, I can't write about every three, all 3,000 breweries that were in existence in 1888. That's sure. not feasible. What I want to do is find the things and the people who actually were historically significant, who made the difference at a moment in time. And Jack was one of those people. So yeah, I was never not going to have that part in there. That would have been stupid. I mean, well, as the original microbrewer, right? And, and that's a fair designation, right? I, there's nobody that's that we right. can tell that came before him that's in the right. 1970s. That's right, because Fritz Maytag's, um, Fritz Maytag's take on it was quite different. Fritz, Fritz was interested in the science because he's just the kind of person who's genuinely interested in science. But at heart... He's an entrepreneur, and he, right. he understood that there was a space for beer, and I'm not sure he gets for different beer. I'm not sure he gets enough credit for that. He really did look around affluent San Francisco, young hipster types in right. the 1960s, and say, they're spending money on imports. Why don't I give them something to spend their money on? But Jack's case was... well, and But then he revived Anchor. Like he saved it from yes. the brink of extinction. No, no, so exactly. Like, you know, he had infrastructure in place. That's right. right. That's right. He bought this brewery. And, then and I don't discredit big, that at all. No, like that's he had, a, a, no the yeah. brewery definitely came first and only after, you know, he had a few bad months, maybe a year where he's like, oh my God, no one's going to buy this beer. What should I do? So he, in effect, re repositioned his brand, I right. think is how the, the marketing speak. Put yeah. It. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Jack, I mean, Jack is a story you can't make up the story of Jack, right? He's his father is in the diplomatic corps, and at 18 he leaves high school, joins the navy, goes abroad, working on nuclear submarines, stationed in Scotland, falls in love with the beer, and becomes just obsessed with beer, especially making beer, and is a lousy businessman. There's no doubt about oh, yeah. it. You know, he 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 made it as long as he could, given that no one in their right mind was going to give him a loan. Right. You know, he, he's, he was just too eccentric and off the wall. But he certainly... And angry, too. I mean, and, that was... And no, admittedly, like he yes, said this. No, yeah. he, 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 he was just never going to be the kind of guy a banker is going to look at and say, well, sure, I'll give you 100000 bucks to so you can buy this property and open a brew pub. It just, yeah. it just wasn't going to happen. But he influenced people directly including Ken Grossman, who absolutely will tell you he was seriously motivated by just going to New Albion and seeing that here's a guy who's roughly like him, which is to say not much money, yeah. and in love with making beer. Ken Grossman was one of those people who was in love with making the beer and said, well, shoot, it is possible. I can do this. And that's, that's something that matters, even though it was a short-lived... Five years, yeah, yes. five years for him. But I, I, it, it's interesting because I've, I've talked to Ken about this extensively, 
And if you go onto the floor of the Great American Beer Festival and you, you, you take a survey of brewers and you say, okay, what's the, what's the beer or brewery that you think influenced you most? And this, this has changed in the last like, five years or so, but you know, five years ago, I would hazard to say eight out of 10 brewers would say either Ken Grossman or Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Yes. You know, or exactly. Sierra Nevada Brewery. Exactly. And if you go to Ken, it's the one guy. It's, you know, it's essentially Jack, you know, and he had other influences, but like as far as professional brewers go. That's right. Which is just sort of this amazing thing that, you know, the, the arguably the most influential beer in modern American beer history of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, and, you know, it inspired by this, you know, this one guy that right. up until your book came out, nobody had really That's thought right. of in a very, very long time. Right, right. Yeah, I, I when I first got wind of him I went and did it this remember this is like 2004 and the internet and web browsing were very very different than they are now and I could I found one short piece somebody had written about Jack and quickly determined there were a number of errors in it you know so yeah sure yeah yeah I I I got Jackie boy back on the scene and he got back out as fast as he could because it's not his thing It, it is absolutely not his thing um when you were doing the revisions on this book and you're, you've spent the better part of the last decade uh, aware of beer in a way that you weren't when you first yes. started this, did that change your perception of, like you can't change historical facts, but did you look at it through a new lens with newfound knowledge because yes. y- you weren't coming into this cold, like you come to the Great American Beer Festival every year or the craft brewers conference if it's here and you know you you're sort of immersed in beer even on twitter and right yeah yeah it definitely did and had i not already started a year earlier started this new book i probably would have ended up just rewriting ambitious brew to include and enlarge on things i'd written so i really had to make myself be very disciplined about not doing that because virtually every third paragraph, I absolutely could have written four more and explained things, not differently, but I certainly would have elaborated. So the fact that I was already deep into a book made me stick very close to the framework of that book. But uh, elaborated how? Elaborated with things that are happening in no, the world now, or things that I have that learned. You've... My perspective is different. This is. I have always chosen to write books about things I don't know anything about because I don't want to come into it with an agenda. So the new book I'm writing is a, not, a, I wouldn't, don't know that I would call it a risk, but intellectually it's been interesting because I'm, for the first time ever, I'm writing about something I know a lot about that I have been observing in real daily life, but also the history of it has changed since then. Now there are actually graduate students studying the history of beer. There was nothing like that. So, yeah, I'm I'm a very different person. That that different person is going into the new book. But so let's talk about the new book. Okay, let's talk about it. It doesn't have a title. I'll just tell you. Uh, that's okay. Not yet, anyway. All right, but what's the elevator pitch on it then? I mean, we can go from there. <laughs> I'm really bad at elevator pitches. All right. Okay. Well, here, it's a really tall building, so you have some time. Okay. Okay. Here, here's. It's best <laughs> to explain where the book came from. I, I published a book about meat. It came out in 2013, and it was the most painful, depressing bomb ever. It really, it, it was really it kind of I like put me, yeah. well, it put me under in a way, and I said I'm never going to write another book again, meaning a book book. 
But I didn't want to not write. So I thought to myself, or my brain said to me, Maureen, you, you know, why don't you just write 25,000 words about beer from 1978 to 2018? using everything you've learned in the previous decade about beer from having written a book. Why don't you do that? So I did that. I essentially wrote all that. And my brain kept saying to me, and of course I didn't pay attention, but what about all those other small brewers? What about all those small brewers who made it through Prohibition and then who made it all the way to the... Where? What's the deal with them? Because the there's thing, so few. <laughs> that's right. There's very few of them. There's very few of them. And, and a, somewhere along the way, my brain said to me, but Maureen, you understand that Charlie Papazian didn't come out of nowhere. There was a history of long, small beer makers. And, and so one day I realized I'm not just going to write from 1978 to 2018. I think I need to write another book about beer, only this one is being told from the perspective of a small beer maker the Shell Marty family in New Ulm, Minnesota, where I know you've been. Yeah. You like it up there. I love it there. Yes. The family has owned that company since it was founded in 1860. The yeah. same family has owned it. And it is not easy to pull that off, especially in a very heavily regulated, difficult, competitive industry like beer. So they're my kind of narrative hook in the way that, say, the Bush and Eline families were for the first book. But but in this book, I'm also asking about, and this is the part that will be hard to do, who, who was actually making the beer? I mean, if you're not obsessed with these big-name beer makers, what do we know about the people who actually made the beer, the, the people actually standing in the brew house putting this thing together? Because it's almost never the owner. Yeah. The other thing that I quickly became aware of was that the actual alcohol content, which I didn't really pay that much attention to in the first book, American beer makers began changing that in the early 1890s in response to the, pro, to the, to the push. The beginning of the Prohibition the beginning movement. beginning of what we think of now as the Prohibition movement. So and the, you're saying 1890s, so 30 years before? Yes, they were already reducing the alcohol content in their beer in order to satisfy these small town, well, they weren't always small town, these people who really don't want alcohol in America. And I hadn't realized just how much that anti-alcohol sentiment had actually shaped the content of the beer so directly and immediately, even before Prohibition, I just didn't realize that. So, and the, the other thing that I think is just inevitable, it's inconceivable, I would write a book now without acknowledging this, is the fact of race. And in this case, New Ulm is in Minnesota. It was founded by a group of Germans who were intentionally trying to get away from the fanaticism of the prohibitionists. They wanted a place where they could drink and have beer in their culture the way they wanted it. They went to Minnesota to build this town and it turned out that in Minnesota there was already this very um, long-standing alcohol culture that was connected to the fact that there were indigenous peoples living there and that there were white people who wanted those indigenous peoples out. And it, I realized very sharply in a way I didn't when I wrote the book first that lager beer in the 1850s when it finally became acceptable was absolutely intended to be a white person's drink. So this isn't a book that's 
directly about race, but I realize now that to talk about the beer industry and not talk about race is to leave out a story that I realize now should be in there. Yeah. So I've set myself this task of writing about this family and how they actually survived. I mean, they're still going. Yeah. It's not easy and it never has been. But they too have been shaped by forces around them that I hadn't really thought about because I wasn't that aware of them. So that's why the book doesn't have a title. It, it will come to me. Yeah. So I've written the back end of the book and I've written much of the first end and I need to write the middle part now. But So this book is a departure. It's not people... I've been asked about a million times in the last couple of weeks. So you're just rehashing Ambitious Brew? No. I think this is a book that actually brings something quite different to the story. It's interesting that we still talk about race and diversity and inclusion uh, in some ways, or you know, not inclusion in, in, in other ways, in beer in 2019. Well, I'm not surprised. Here's, here's one revelation I had, and I think this is why, without me realizing it, I was turning toward including race when I, when I first was going to just write this essay of 25,000, 30,000 words from 1978 to 2018. And I was going back and thinking about that and trying to write about it in a broader, more um, thoughtful way than I had the first time. Over and over again, I was struck that the whole thing was predicated on building a community, but at no point ever did it even occur to anyone, and this isn't a criticism, it simply didn't occur to anybody involved that community was gonna be anything more than people who looked like Charlie Papazian or some other homebrew. There was never, the community, it, it just simply didn't occur to anybody that wow, we're having this great American beer festival and there are, 40,000 people showing up over the course in the early years of four days and 99.9% of them are white and now what about community? I, I mean I really started thinking about things like that and I don't think it's I don't think I'm being asking too much for readers to think about that too When you were doing the research, and you're still doing the research on this book, you were, you were talking about the brewers and talking about you know, sort of the anonymous... Yeah. yeah. Are there records that exist? Unfortunately, no. P part of the problem is that from roughly 1915 on, there were thousands and thousands of companies closing, and presumably their records were just, just trashed yeah. or burned or whatever. We have very little very little left from that period. It's, it's uh, almost painful. And we also, we, not we, Americans lost a great deal of intellectual capital during Prohibition. A lot of talent, a lot of skill just was lost. And the brewers themselves were, they had an identity they had two identities. One of the most interesting things about this book, to me, is the episode in which it becomes clear that a lot of the professional brewers, not the people who own the companies, but the people who are actually making the beer between, say, 1900 and 1920, mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are like, damn it, 
if I can't make a full alcohol content beer, it's not really beer, and I don't think I should make it. And then there was another school of thought that said, well, beer is essentially a, chemical, a series of chemical reactions, and isn't it still beer, even if Woodrow Wilson tells us that legally it can contain no more than 2.75 alcohol? This was a serious debate. It, it nearly destroyed the what was then the Masters Brewer Association yeah because there there was this conflict of what does it mean to be an actual beer maker what is beer what is beer of course nowadays people are like well you know you can take rock salt from a after a snowstorm after the snow plows come through and put it in your beer and say here's yeah don't don't do that no don't do that seriously don't 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 do do that that. don't do that That was a bad example. Forget it. That was a really terrible yes. example. Well, like, I was there's some homebrewer right now. No, who's don't. And yeah. Honestly, somebody's probably done it. You know, or at yeah. least rock salt goza. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. don't so, don't do it. So that that is a way in which um, I think people who make beer today ask a completely different question: What can't beer not be? Which I realize has too many negatives sure. in it. But it, I get it. it you know, but a hundred years ago, that wasn't so obvious. And I think, by the way, I think that goes back to another meta question. Do you make beer that you like as an owner or the brewer? Or do you make the beer that you want think the public wants? Well, so that's a really curious question, right? Because in the case of Shell, and now they have Grain Belt uh, under, their, uh, under their belt, as it were, and uh, in their portfolio. Um, but they were making the beers that I think people wanted to drink in that area that's right and they made you know stein beers and bach beers and that's right uh, in the winter and then just a corn lager in the summer and that's right um year round and i wonder if that is in part why they survived if you're making the beer that people are going to support 100 percent. okay the reason i know that is they were making the fact the cover of the book is going to be include a shell brewing a beer poster from circa 1907 beautiful poster but it is a poster advertising their non-carbonated malt non non-alcoholic carbonated malt beverage yeah they they made mead a low alcohol mead they they made what the market necessitated they make in order to survive there, there was at no point did they were like oh well we really want to make x can't do it. Not but see, that's so interesting bids. because the parallels exist today where I go and I visit breweries and, you know, they'll say to me, oh, boy, if I could just make, you know, low ABV stouts all day long or, you know, I, my, my English mild I love more than anything. But mm-hmm. all people want is hazy IPA. So I got to make right. hazy IPA. That's right. That's right. It's history. Is it, Are there parallels of history repeating itself or things that? Oh, sure. In it, to go back even further, in the 1860s and 1870s, the German immigrant brewers like Adolphus Busch and Eberhard Anheuser and Joseph Schlitz and his nephews, the Eline brothers, Fred Miller, they all figured out pretty quickly that Americans, which in the 1860s meant white people who were born in the U.S. and English was their first language, okay. man, they didn't want anything to do with this German beer. They just didn't want anything to do with it. And sure, but it, that, that was also larger global context at that point, right? Well, the, the, but the context was if you, want, if you were Adolphus Busch and you were really ambitious, man, you could not make beer that would make the Germans in a five-block area of St. Louis happy. You had to figure out what people in New York City who had money were going to drink and that's what he did yeah so there is a constant interplay between what people want 
and what, gosh, in your you know your fondest dreams, you're only going to make. And I think brewers today have an incredibly difficult job because they have to keep coming up with new ideas all the time, and it's not cheap to do that. People don't understand those labels all have to be registered. They got to be printed. All of that costs money. So if consumers want nothing but a new kind of beer every three and a half weeks, and you're giving it to them, boy, are you spending a lot of money chasing after consumer fads. It's a, it's a hard way to run a business, let's yeah, put it that way. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing, as we're getting towards the end of 2019 right now, I think we're starting to see some of those realities start to creep in. I'm seeing more breweries close. Um, you know, which is, which is natural. Like this isn't the sign of a bubble bursting, but when I talk to some of these folks, it's just like, it just becomes too much or, you know, the debt got away from them and it's the, you know, we were popular one minute and now we're not, or we're never going to be popular in the way that we want it to be. So let's just pull up stakes and and walk away. Yeah, that's right. You can lay out the best business plan in the world, but when you actually, Ken Grossman learned this. It's one thing to be a home brewer, but when you actually start making the beer, whoa, everything changed, you know, on a, for a commercial scale. And you can lay out a plan that I'm going to have this little neighborhood place and we're going to specialize in X. Yeah. It, what's on the beer plan, what's on your business plan, probably isn't going to necessarily translate into the real world. I'm... I'm one thing that I, I, I think I'd love to see more of is, and you're, you were just talking about, you know, the beer of the now and the, the trend. And I think so much of beer these days is focused on Instagram right here in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where are we going to be in five years, 10 years, et cetera, that people are looking forward. And I'm, I'm often dismayed that breweries are not keeping their history in the way that maybe they should that they're not archiving oh you know that they're not i imagine you have a case to make for this oh i i have been trying to make this case since the book came out in 2006 i i anybody who would ask anytime i would talk to a beer an actual brewery owner i'd say don't throw stuff out okay just you know think about it try to and i would explain you could you could give it to a local university library maybe you can do x and now the smithsonian Thanks in part to, I believe, I could be wrong, that a large part of the funding for this initiative at the Smithsonian for craft saving craft beer history actually came from the, Kim, the Jordan Family Foundation, Kim Jordan and her family's foundation. From New Belgium, but yeah. The, I think uh, that's right. The, uh, the, now there is a sense that, yes, you should think about yourself historically but man it's really hard for someone who's scrambling and the, someone didn't show up for work today and man something just broke and I've got to fix it and I've got a leak here and it's hard to think about the long haul that way but yeah there's not a lot of uh, documentation for anything and I'm hoping that will change I'm hoping there's also I, I think a need to keep the stories accurate because yeah y- uh, Jeff Allworth, the, the, the writer, and I have, have, have come up with what we've called romantic facts mm-hmm. uh, that exist in the beer world where it sounds really nice. And if you, you say it enough times, you know, people you know, start to believe it, as it were. Very and uh, yes. It is. It is. And, and I think it happens with a lot of the larger breweries, uh, you know, that are out there of sort of, you know, um, we're in a legacy building 
phase right now for a lot of brewers where, you know, they want to be remembered mm-hmm. a certain way. And, you know, there's some of the, that early history or some of the earlier things um, are just sort of being left out of the narrative now, whereas maybe they weren't back then. That's right. That's right. And, and you can go to a lot of companies that have been in business 10, 20 years or even ones that are resuscitating a brand. We, the resuscitators, I call them. We've been in business since 1876. The brink, you know what I mean? Actually, folks, they haven't been in business that long. No, yeah. there is a, an inclination to make the history what is remembered and what people remember are the high points. They don't necessarily remember the difficulties, which, by the way, is one reason I think everybody who's interested in beer should read Ken Grossman's memoir, the name of the title of which totally is... It's something about pale ale. Yeah, I don't remember the title, but yeah. Ken Grossman has a very reserved personality. He's an engineer at heart. You know, he's a, he's not Sam Caljone. He's sort of the antithesis. And that book, without him, I think, really intending, documents just the sheer brutality of what it's like to build a business over many decades, have a family, you know, struggle to make things work. You don't get to be a billionaire. Well, some people do because it's handed to them, but the people who earn the billionaire status, they get there through a lot of hard work. And yeah, it's, yeah. Beyond the Pale, the story of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, 2013. That's right, Um, catchy title. But he also talks about his original co-founder in that book. Paul yes. That's the first time that story's been told, I believe. One of the first, yeah. Uh, I mean, but those who were around when he founded obviously knew that they were involved and then, you know, buying the company and turning it into a family family enterprise. But these days when you go and here at GABF this year, uh, they have the the original brew house uh, on the floor. Yeah. And uh, and it's a fun it's a fun thing to see, but Ken is front and center and there's no talk of Paul. Right. And that's sort of the, you know, I, I he's not involved in the company anymore, but when you're talking oh, no. about the original brew house, yes. There's almost a responsibility in some ways of just Yes. Yeah. No, I agree and there's a tremendous amount of glossing. Yes. Let's just call it glossing, which I think is inevitable, but and that happens, I mean, this is not unique to beer. No, if, no, it is most certainly not. No, 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 not at all. And I, that's why I think it's important for people like me to, who, and again, I, I am a historian. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't do it because I love beer. I don't do it because I work for a brewer. I've never worked for a brewer. I got nobody, and contrary to popular belief, Anheuser-Busch did not pay me to write that book. They had absolutely, in fact, they went out of their way to make things difficult for me so yeah it's important to have uh some kind of historical you and josh noel should get together and just uh commiserate on those types of things yeah (laughs) Yeah, i don't think he would he's not the kind of guy who commiserates or even really talks to people he's a yeah but that that's what's fascinating to me about this smithsonian initiative and for example uh a month uh, the the last weekend of october there's going to be a big three-day symposium about beer which in my honestly in my wildest dreams in 2004 5 6 I could never imagine something like that happening it's beer is now being taken seriously as something worth intellectual endeavor from people who aren't in the industry I'm very excited about that i flabbergasted by the whole thing and they've got some serious bucks behind it it's going to be a really nice event but I never imagined something like that would help. I never imagined the Smithsonian would actually be 
doing oral histories, which is crucially important. This summer, the woman who, Teresa McCullough, who heads mm-hmm. the Smithsonian's program, spent her entire summer going all over the country talking to people who, if we don't talk to them now, you know, a lot of these people are in their 70s. At least one of them's in his 80s. You know? yeah. So, yeah, I don't like glossing over, but it's hard work to do the job of saving the facts, too. It's sort of an interesting thing, though, because I, I'm surprised that you're surprised that, uh, that the Smithsonian is doing this. Because when we first started talking, you were saying, you know, this is the story of America in a lot of ways. And, I mean, that's what the Smithsonian documents. I mean, it there's does, a reason there's Letterman's desk and Kermit the Frog and, mm-hmm. you know, all these other things that you can go and see. As I said, things like beer and meat are ubiquitous. They are part of daily life. They're like air. You don't really think about them. I, people, when I said I was in back in the early part of this century when I said I was going to write a book about beer, people thought it was, was going to be ago, a, like, a pun-laden, yeah. you know, fun fest. It, nobody <laughs> really tried to take it seriously before, and I decided to. So, yeah, that the Smithsonian has decided this is worth the effort. Of course, it didn't hurt that an extremely wealthy person yeah. agree, decided so and donated the money. It, yeah. Because, yeah, because, you know, the Smithsonian does not have a huge budget. It's like any Less other. Days, they need yeah. grants. They need donations. They need whatever. It's a good thing to remember as well. Yes. And I, mean, and I see more even local historical societies doing beer. Uh, as well they should. Yeah. If only they'd started that you know, a hundred years ago. Or it would so. have made your job a little a bit easier. A lot easier. Yeah, a lot. Or, well, actually, it would have made it more complicated because I have, would have had, I mean, in some sense, my book was limited by what I could dig up. And what I dug up was what was available. It's not like there are boxes and boxes of files. Yeah. You know, I was looking through arcane lawsuits where the transcripts of depositions were recorded. That's what I was using just for any sort of any sort of and a nugget or any, just yeah. right anything that i could find you, you know you just hunt everywhere for little pieces of information and if you're lucky and and you know what to do with those pieces of information you end up with a hopefully a story worth telling when you're finished but it's not one of the funniest right when the book came out back in 2006 i did a podcast with these two guys they were brothers back when podcasts were Still very, very Novel. new. And, yeah, no, everybody and, has one. Now. And one, one of the brothers said, well, it must not, you know, it must have been pretty easy. I mean, the story just kind of wrote itself, right? And, I, and I, you know, I was very, I was very polite, but I said, no, that's not exactly how it works. No, if, if that's the way it appears on the page, then I've done my job right. right. I made it look like, yeah, this story just emerged from my head full blown, you know, like Zeus or whichever god that was. But that's not how it works. Do we need more beer historians or more historians yeah. in general? Yeah. But well, we definitely need more historians, or we, and we need a public that will. The long view of the big picture is crucial, whether it's for understanding Donald Trump or your little brewery down the street. It matters a lot. There are a few graduate students who are now writing dissertations about beer and. Hallelujah, man. I, I can't tell you. I wish there were, I wish I could clone every one of them times a thousand and get another, yeah, I wish. I wish. 
think that's probably a good place to leave it. Okay. Thank you. All Martin. right. Thank you, John. The very uh, much. the book is out now. The yes. The revised it is. version of Ambitious Brew. Yes, it's uh, on pay. It's in paper at Barnes and Noble and okay. Amazon worldwide, and it's an ebook. And I I'll just I'll just finish up by saying this. I did publish this myself, but it was possible technologically to do that. I used this incredible application called Vellum, okay. which formatted the manuscript for print, for Kobo, for ebook on an iPad, ebook on a Kindle Paperwhite. You know, it formatted them specifically. And if you're reading the book, for example, on a Kindle or your phone, if you want to read one of the hundreds and hundreds of endnotes, you just tap on the number and it opens. And when you're finished reading, you just tap the screen and it closes. And it can actually be read on a phone very that's, easily. That's really cool. So also it is. something that was not available in Never. 2006. No, not even in the ballpark of being available. I Five years ago, I could not have done this. I flat out couldn't have done it. But now I can, so why not? Is there a time frame for the new new book, the, un, the still untitled? I would like to get off. I, I set things aside so I could do these, get these two books. that I, I thought it would take at least a year and a half to get the rights. When I got them back in four weeks, I was like, well, there goes my schedule for 2019. So um, I, I would really like to have the new book out by the end of 2020 that's probably a bit unrealistic because I also I'm also the person who does the copy editing the proofreading I have to write the index and that stuff all takes hours days of time indexing is the worst uh, actually I love indexing oh, I have a gosh. weird brain for it oh. but I'm hoping again I, I, I kind of wrote the end and then yeah. decided I would write a book so I've got the end and I've got much of the beginning and Right, so now you just need the meat of the sandwich. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah something like that. Okay. Yeah. So, and I'm, I feel very confident about this in a way that I've never felt confident because I actually am standing on a foundation instead of wading through quicksand, which is usually what I'm doing when I'm writing a book that I don't know anything about. So sure. I have that advantage. And the sh- and the Marty family has been. Oh, they're great. Oh, incredibly cooperative. Yeah. Every time I go up there. Ted walks over to wherever this 19th century safe they've probably had since 1816. He comes back with this huge armload of stuff and he lays it on the table and said, I don't know if any of this will be useful, but it might. And I want to cry because of what it is. It's incredible. So. All right. Yeah. Late 2020. We need this. We need to read this book. I, I, I need to finish this book. Okay. I want to finish this book. Okay. Yeah. So here's hoping. Yeah. And I think in the biz they say cheers. Uh, sure. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's fine. I'll just, I'll okay. put that in. Yeah. Cheers, right. Maureen. Cheers. Yeah, it's, uh, cheers. We don't John. have beer in front of us, so no, it's a little bit weird. So it's right. like we're just British and being polite now. Yeah. My my son-in-law, who is British, says cheers at the end of every. You know, if I say yeah. the cereals over there, oh, cheers, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Maureen. Thank you very much. I appreciate it it's more than you realize. That's Maureen Ogle, author of Ambitious Brew, A History of American Beer. The revised edition is now available where books are sold, and you should follow Maureen on Twitter at Maureen Ogle. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. Subscribing and even leaving a review on your podcast platform goes a long way to helping other people find the show. So thanks to all of you who have taken the time to do so thus far. Do you like what you hear? Do you have suggestions? Do you want to tell me about someone you think I should get on the microphone? Drop me a note at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or join me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. 
Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, Andy Crouch just wants some figgy pudding. And if you want to learn more about advertising on this show and other Beer Edge products, drop Ryan Newhouse a note at ryan at beeredge.com. Drink Beer, Think Beer is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at beeredge.com. I'm John Hall, and that's it for this episode. Remember that new shows come out every Wednesday. Subscribe, and you can get it as soon as it hits your platform. Thanks so much for listening in on this bonus episode, and I hope you'll be back next week as we drink beer and Cheers. Cheers.